Hey, welcome to the Wildscast. Wow, I just came out of an hour conversation with one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. His name is Jeremy Gimple, Rabbi Jeremy Gimple, who is a teacher, farmer, and pioneering entrepreneur. Rabbi Gimple, along with his wife, Tehila, and six children, founded the Arugot Farm an educational center at the edge of the Jewish settlement in the land of Israel. He is the perfect person to speak to about the issues we just covered. We talked about the judicial reform going on in Israel and the fights between the left and the right on this issue. We talked about the two-state solution, not in favor of the two-state solution. Tune in and hear his perspective on how he believes peace will ultimately be achieved between the Israelis and the Palestinians. We spoke also about Israel's important role in the world and its messianic place, meaning where is Israel going? What is the ultimate point of settling the land of Israel and how is this supposed to lead us to the Geula, to the ultimate redemption? And finally, he gave me some great advice how to do better on the outreach front. Take a listen. Welcome to the Wildscast, my friend Jeremy Gimple. How are you? Excellent. Rabbi, thank you for having me. Really a pleasure to be here. Clearly something amazing is about to happen. With the technical, like some, there's forces that are at us to not allow this light to come into the world. I'm thrilled to see what's going to happen. <laughs> yes, there's definitely been some klipot sitra achra, some dark black magic going on here, trying to keep us from having this conversation. But we are gonna we're gonna plow through. So, um, Jeremy, I, I we have our own personal relationship, my family, and I want to thank you publicly. We had such an incredible Shabbos at the Arugot Farm and Educational Center. You guys hosted us last year, like last second. We all came. My, my kids are still speaking about it. It's just been incredible. So let me ask you a question. We'll get it right into it. You started this Arugot Farm and Educational Center at the edge of the Jewish settlement in the land of Israel. Tell me why you started this and how's it going? Um, You know, I think that, I mean, if you're going really deep, if you're asking from my heart, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew and I try to figure out what does that mean in the world? I mean, Abraham was the first Jew, but he didn't have a Torah. So what does that mean? Abraham had his own reality, but he was the first Jew, but Moses came much later. And then all of a sudden we got the Torah rules, regulations, times, what to do. And then there was a temple at one point where we were sacrificing animals. And now it's 2023 and we have Instagram and Facebook and this telecommunications that we're doing on this podcast. What is the common thread between Abraham, Moses, the Talmud, and here we are in 2023? Like, those are external expressions that are totally different. It's different religions. Ah, so being a Jew isn't a religion. What is it then? What is the heart of what it means to be a Jew in the world? And for me, I'm sure there's many answers, but for me, it is that we can live a guided life. That if we are open, our eyes are open, our hearts are open, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God Himself, will guide us toward our own personal destiny, toward our own national destiny, and ultimately towards humanity's international destiny. But it starts really with the individual. We can live a guided life. And if I have to answer that question honestly, both my wife and I felt as though we were being guided to go out of our comfort zone and to go out past the caravans of the last Jews in Judea and established this farm. We just felt called to that place. I don't think Abraham heard a booming voice from heaven, lech lecha, go to the land that I will show you. I don't believe that. I think that he had an inner intuition, and that inner intuition was a calling in his life 
And in fact, all of us should be living by a calling. What is calling us? What are we passionate about? What do we believe in? And then live by that inner calling. And that is the essence of what it is to be a Jew. And it's a lot easier when it's like when we make mistakes, like our, we wake up to that a little bit easier where it's like, ooh, do you really want to do that? Like there's a conscience that kind of holds us back from when we're about to do something bad. But I think that some are lucky enough to really feel a calling to the positive. And it took us, you know, we sold our home. We sold most of our possessions. We moved six children to a mountaintop. At that time, we were the only family on the mountain at just the edge of the desert overlooking the Dead Sea. And um, the only explanation that I have is that we really believe that that's what we were being called to do. And it was scary. My wife is a lawyer. I mean, you know about my wife. I haven't won an argument in 20 years. I'm like, a lawyer on a mountain alone? You know, like, that's not a good strategy for living. We were, we, <laughs> so I, yeah, we, we were, we were up until one thirty-two in the morning on that Friday night when we came to you for Shabbat. And just your wife is brilliant. And it was fascinating She's amazing. to have that conversation. And I was like, I was and nervous I was like, though. Cause I like, cannot... what if she fights with me? Who's going to be my friend? But I was like, I, I, I was like, it's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, how did he get this brilliant intellectual to follow him to this mountaintop? I was like, what, what did you do to, but she's committed, man. She's passionate. Like you are. Let me ask you this, Jeremy, what rabbi Jeremy, what did you, what, what was in your childhood? What was in your background that inspired you? I mean, to, to a, want to live a guided life. I wrote that down, by the way, that's a beautiful line, a guided life and to be so ambitious in trying to, really take the Jewish people, because I see what you're doing in Israel by settling more and more of the land of Israel is really just furthering Jewish history, deepening Jewish history into the land of Israel. What inspired you growing up? Maybe something in your childhood or something happened in life? Because like, not everybody does this. Yeah, that's a good question. So you asked two questions that you said, well, what led me to live a guided life? Why is that like what I live by? And then what led me to move to the farm? And so I think to live a guided life is really the only way to live for me. Um, I don't know what truths are anymore. I don't know what lies are anymore. It seems like every media outlet is just a propaganda machine for another agenda. All I can trust is my inner intuition. And I've lived by that my whole life and that has always served me well. It hasn't always been easy, but it is to believe in the Jewish reality that Hashem has not changed in many ways. And that the same way that he spoke to Abraham and he spoke to Yirmiyahu Hanavi and he spoke to Moses and he spoke to the Rebbe's throughout all of our history. We were able to intuit and live a godly life, live a guided life. Halacha doesn't really answer the question for us because sometimes you'll have a question and then, well, this food, is it kosher? I'm not sure. Should I throw it away? I'm not sure. Well, one is baltashchid. One is wasting food. You're not allowed to waste food. And one is, well, is it kosher? And I'm not allowed to eat not kosher food. And well, now what do I do? I don't really know. And you eventually like, now, Allah doesn't always have the answer, and not everyone's always brilliant enough to know the halachic details. So what do you have in real-life situations? The big choices in life, who are you going to marry? That the Allah can't teach you that. Judaism, religion can't teach you that. What job are you going to pursue? What career? Where are you going to live? Those are all things that are going to come from your gut. So the most important life decisions, whether you like it or not, are going to come for your intuition. And so Judaism and the Torah is molding us into a person that will have a more refined and in-tune intuition, meaning the Torah more than anything is trying to embody knowledge. Da'at in Hebrew doesn't just mean intellectual wisdom, but it literally means embodied knowledge. What's embodied knowledge? It's kind of like when you're driving a car. 
You know, you don't really think about it. You're just driving, right? Shifting the gears, fast brakes. It's already in you. You know how to drive a car. You have dot. And so the same as you give tzedakah, you become more giving. And as we live by the Torah, we become more godly. And then hopefully that inner antenna will receive godly um, frequencies and we can try to live a guided life. And then that will be the source of blessing. And so I don't know who taught me that. That just seems almost like an, a self-evident truth to a little child. And I sort of never lost that child um that childishness, the Rebbe Nachman says, never grow old. That's how I understand that. That little, little kids know, like, mm, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't want me to do that. Hashem would be unhappy with that. Just simple and munah like that. And just to continue to live by that. And the stakes get higher and higher because, you know, well, that's rational. But no, just to continue to live by that un, un, unwaveringly. Um, so that's why wow. I live a God. Wow. And, and I've seen that. And, and the farm. Yeah. So my grandfather walked from... Uh, Bialystok to Israel in 1916. And it took him a year and a half. He was 15, 16 years old, backpack on his back. He walked for a year and a half with a group of 20 other young Zionists. And for two years, uh, he joined Kibbutz Deganya, which was the first kibbutz in Israel, situated right on the Sea of Galilee. And for two years, he planted eucalyptus trees all around the Sea of Galilee, all around the Kinneret. And I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And I grew up on the legends of my grandfather. I never got to meet him. But even though I didn't grow up so from so observant, I grew up on the legends of a Jew who lived a guided life, who walked wow. to one day maybe establish what would be the new Jewish homeland. And when I got to the Arugot farm and I saw my partner planting olive trees at the edge of the desert, it touched my heart in such a way. I was like, what? You can be a pioneer in 2015? <laughs> I didn't even know that was an option. I am in. I am in. And so... From that moment, I didn't know that it would eventually take my entire family to move there, but I knew as soon as I saw that project, that is what I wanted to be involved in. Um, you know, for more than 20 years, I've been teaching about Israel and Zionism and Judaism, and finally to actually be able to manifest that, to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So that was, um, it was wow. just, I was guided to this reality. But um, I think more than anything else, you said something important. Geula redemption like the actual end game world peace i haven't given up on that yet i actually believe that it is within humanity's ability to achieve a consciousness that will be led by the jewish people in israel that will spread around the world that will ultimately bring world peace i really believe that and i think that the linchpin is for some reason mysteriously connected to the jewish people settling the land of israel geulat karka is the word most used when referring to that idea of Geula. Once right and left in Israel, it's all about, should there be a Palestinian state? Shouldn't there be a Palestinian state? Just settle the land and it will work out. We'll bring peace and prosperity in law and order. The more the Jews enter into the promise, the promised land, that was what was promised to us, then that it's like the linchpin. That is what will be, bring sort of us to the next level. And so if that's what happens in Judea and Samaria in our lifetime will affect Jewish history for generations to come. So then I would like to position myself at the edge of Jewish settlement, settling Judea and Samaria. Mm -hmm. No, that answers it. That really answers it. And by the way, this is very personal for me because I don't meet a lot of people whose grandparents were from Bialystok. My Zadie, I think I told you this. My father's father was also from Bialystok. He did not walk to Israel. He came to Oliphant, Pennsylvania, <laughs> small little hick town in Pennsylvania wow. where my dad was raised. 
but it's an unbelievable. If you would have stayed in Bialystok, um, it would have been ugly. No one survived Bialystok. The Jews that made it out were very lucky. I know, I know. It's um, he had a brother who perished in the Holocaust. My Zaidi's uh, brother, who stayed, the rest were able to get out, and they and they, you know, they were saved. But that's unbelievable, and I I I really appreciate your idealism. And, you know, the way you are literally tending a flock, what my family and all of us were just blown away by was how much the Arab neighbors of yours sort of respect the fact that you have a flock of sheep and you're tending your flock of sheep. They leave you alone and you do your own thing and just and at the same time are building up and growing the Jewish population in Israel in some very important parts. Rabbi, not only that. But we have beautiful mattresses and pillows in our synagogue on the top of the mountain. Actually, I don't know if they were there when you were there. I think that they were, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But they were donated to us by the Arab Muslim Bedouin village next to us. And so imagine that the the settlers that are the obstacle to peace in the Middle East. No, the Arab Muslim village next to us, the Bedouins, donated the mattresses and pillows to help us build our synagogue. And so the lies and the disinformation it's like how is peace going to be established in israel it's not going to be by politicians in the united nations but it's by neighbors it's by working together it's by building together it's by seeing us that we are not a threat to them on the contrary we're godly men we're uh, shepherds like they are we're settling the land we brought them jobs now the police patrol the roads a lot more so we brought more security we brought more order we brought economy and they literally donated mattresses and pillows to our synagogue as a wow. thanks we did nothing in particular to them just our presence was a blessing to them well i i, I did not sleep on those mattresses or pillows so they weren't there at the time i'm really happy to hear that and uh you know my my teacher rabbi riskin he should live and be well when he started the city of Efrat. Um, you know, he said the same thing. The first thing he did was to visit some of the Arab leaders in the area. Um, you know, unfortunately, when the, this is many years ago, this is in the 80s, I was a student in high school at the time, and he was making Aliyah. And he had some really beautiful relationships that he developed with Arab leaders in the area. Now, you're not of the opinion, therefore, if, if I understand you correctly, that the best road to peace is some sort of two-state solution. That's not your vision your vision is more there's a jewish state we create it in a way that we can live side by side in peace with our arab palestinian bedouin neighbors but it's going to be one state and not two is that your opinion what 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 do you think is the road to peace you have a unique perspective living there you're um uh you've got your own show you're quite learned and knowledgeable i've been listening to a lot of your stuff you know what's going on Tell us what you think is the most realistic path to peace. Okay. Um, first of all, I just want one more connection that we had, Rabbi. I also went to Rabbi Riskin's high school. He was my first rabbi. In Efrat, he established Innovation Well. So we went to the not the same high uh-huh. school, but we had the same Rosh Hashiva of our high school. Right. And so, yeah, um, wow. Know, I mean, obviously, much, much of my worldview is shaped by Rabbi Riskin. My outreach to Christians is shaped by Rabbi Riskin. My outreach to Muslim Arabs is shaped by Rabbi Riskin. Because the Jewish vision is uniquely in particular Jewish, but it is a universal idea that by us being the best Jews that we can be, we can be a blessing to the world. And so why is it important to be in Judea? They want to establish a two-state solution in Judea. And so I want to think about that on a few levels. 
one from my farm to Jerusalem is about eight miles. So let me ask you a question. How long would the war in the Ukraine last if the Ukraine was eight miles wide? That war would last about five minutes. It would have been over. Yeah, it would have been over yeah. 10 and, minutes after it started. And so the I don't believe in Israel giving up our independence and our security to rely on perhaps one administration's promises or NATO's promises. I think that the Jewish people need to rely on the Jewish people and a strong and independent Israel is the only way for that to ever happen. So a two-state solution, just on that alone, it's just not an option. It's not an option. It's not a viable option. And and the reason you believe, and this is important for our listeners to hear us, I want you to clarify, the reason you believe it would be dangerous is because you think that the leadership, whoever the leadership would be, we don't even know if, you know, the Palestinian Authority, it certainly wouldn't be Hamas, but whoever the leadership would be, you simply would not be able to rely that they somehow wouldn't turn against and use like, like what happened in Gaza, that, that would, the same thing would happen in Yehuda Shomron in Judea and Samaria. Is that the concern? I'm saying much more than that. I'm saying not only do I not rely, that is exactly what will happen. Whatever happened in Gaza will happen there. Whatever happened in Lebanon with the Hezbollah now will happen there. I know that that will happen, but I'm not even so concerned necessarily just about the Arabs living within the land of Israel. What happens when Iran gets involved? What happens if Egypt gets involved? There have been times Israel has been attacked by multiple armies at the same time. And if Israel's borders are nine miles wide, I'm not just thinking about what will happen in Judea and Samaria. I'm thinking about Israel's future 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road. Who knows what political changes might happen? But that's just on the very basic survival level. But I want to talk now on a different level, a second level. I live in the mountains of Judea, and my farm overlooks the Judean desert. And I'm considered to be a West Bank colonizing, occupying settler in an area C of the Oslo Accords, and I'm told to evacuate this political territory. It almost sounds legitimate, but for all the listeners here, and I, I know because I say this to every person that comes to the farm, I know that most of the listeners, as most of the people that come to the farm, do not know the answer to this question. Why are Jews called Jews? In the Torah, we're not called a Jew. Uh, Abraham is called an Ivri. He's called a Hebrew. And then we're called B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, Israelites. Where did the word Jew come from? We're not called Jews. Where is that? That's not in the Torah. Why are we called Jews today? If you're a Jew in New York, you're called a Jew. If you're a Jew in Tel Aviv, you're called a Jew. If you're in Hong Kong, Jews around the world. Our identity today is called Jews. And most people don't know why we're called Jews. And so some people say, ah, maybe we're from the tribe of Judah. That's what we're from, but that's not true. The first person in the Bible to be called a Jew is Mordechai in the book of Esther. It says, Mordechai Hayudi, Mordechai the Jew. Ish Yemini, a man from the tribe of Benjamin. If he's from the tribe of Benjamin, why is he called a Jew? Why are we called Jews? It would be important for us to know as Jews, who, where do we, why are we called that? Jews are called Jews because we are from Judea. Japanese, they're from Japan. Mexicans, they're from Mexico. Chinese are from China. Germans are from Germany. Jews, we're from Judea. The land, the Judean mountains, the Judean desert, Eretz Yehuda, the land of Judea is what birthed our identity as Jews. So when the United Nations or the European Union says West Bank colonizing, occupying settlers, evacuate Area C, what they're really saying is Jews, get out of Judea. And if a Jew can't live as a free Jew in Judea, Rabbi, it's just a matter of time until Jews won't be free in New York. If a Jew does not have a right to be free in our indigenous homeland, 
and we cannot stand up for our moral rights to live as free Jews in Judea, Jews will not be free anywhere in the world. So I don't just see our farmers on the front lines of settlement of the Jews in Israel. I see ourselves on the front lines of Jewish rights for every Jew in the world. Now, that's why a two-state solution is also immoral. It's not only strategically ridiculous and insanely dangerous, it's also immoral. But now, so what do we do? What then is the solution? So the solution is really complicated. It's not complicated in its implementation, but it's complicated in its um, the virtues that it would require of Israel to reveal in the world. Because on one hand, it would have to come from a very deep place of love and respect, like Rabbi Riskin would teach. And so every Arab that lives in the land of Israel needs to be guarded, needs to be empowered, needs to know how precious they are to the people of Israel, that God, in some mysterious way, chose them to live among us as a ger, as a stranger in our land. And as so, the Torah tells us 36 times, be kind to the stranger in your land. And so we have a responsibility to uplift these people, that many of them are illiterate, they're all being brainwashed in their mosques, they're all being brainwashed in their schools to hate Jews, to hate every infidel. And so we need to, out of a place of love, take responsibility for the Arabs inside Israel. And what does that also mean? That's a place of love. But then when there is an Arab in the land of Israel that raises a rock against a Jew, or like we saw over Pesach, walks over to the D family and executes a mother and their two daughters at point blank with 20 bullets, that Arab needs to be put to death. And I would also say whoever raised, created such a thing, there needs to be a punishment and so on one hand, we have love and empowerment towards those that want to join and live in peace with us. Like we reached out to Dubai, like we reached out to Morocco, there is, we can make peace here. And those that don't want peace, out, out, we'll throw you into Gaza. Gaza will become our new prison or we'll execute you. And there will be a death penalty in Israel. And we take their bodies and we wrap them in pigskins the way that the British do. And we bury terrorists who kill children in pigskins. And then they won't get their world to come according to their religion. We need to do whatever we need to do to ensure that no Jews are killed in the land of Israel by any terrorist ever. And if there is one that is killed by a terrorist, that terrorist and whatever created that terrorist, even if it's just a post on Facebook, that needs to be rooted out entirely. I spent Hanukkah in Dubai last year. There is zero crime in Dubai. It's hard for us to imagine because you live in New York and Chicago and Israel. There's crime and terrorism everywhere. A world without any crime? It was unbelievable. I sent my daughter in downtown Dubai to go across the street to go get us some food from the Makola to bring back for dinner. And I had no concern, even though there were Afghani people on one corner, some African people on the other corner, there's zero crime because the leader of Dubai is a brilliant man. And he actually says, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. He's teaching us about justice. And he says an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And there is zero tolerance to crime. And so Israel needs to adopt that exact approach, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. So on one hand, we need to empower the Arabs that want to be partners with us, that want to live among us, that want to be partners in building this country, which I believe has the potential of quite literally being the kingdom of God on earth. And on the Arab ones, if they're not, it's a holy land and unholy people need to be removed from that land. Right. Now, I, I, I hear you.
very loud and clear on the what you would do to combat terrorism. And I hear it. And I don't entirely disagree. I, I disagree with some aspects, but not entirely. I want to go back to the peace and love that you would extend to Arabs who are being brainwashed and to hate Jews. How would you deprogram? Because I think that's the silent, I don't want to say majority. It's a lot of Arabs, Palestinians, who um, have a different narrative. They've been brainwashed to believe that you know, Jews are not from Judea. They are from Europe and they're colonizers and the world felt bad for them. And there are a lot of people in the West who believe this kind of ridiculous narrative that, that it was this, um, the Jewish people were persecuted by the Nazis and therefore let's give them a place because otherwise, you know, they have nowhere else to live. What are we going to do? But this is like a new phenomena. They've just basically erased 2,500 years of Jewish history. What do you do to someone who has been raised to believe that? Because that's, probably the majority of Palestinians today who are raised to believe that we are usurpers and colonizers of the land. And I understand what you would do with those who commit crimes and those who commit acts of terror. And I don't disagree with that approach, but what would you do with the majority of Palestinians who just feel like we took their land and want their own state as a result? That's why I think so many Jews are in favor of us. It seems like the logical thing, give them a state and we'll have a state. Now I happen to agree Security-wise, I think if we don't learn from Gaza, then we're just being, you know, fools to think that there's there 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 that we have a, a a peace partner here. We don't have one, unfortunately. But we made peace with Egypt. We made peace with Jordan. It's a cold peace, but it's, it's held out. But they were a separate country, right? And they had their own independence, their own sovereignty. The Palestinians don't, and they still claim they want it. So what do you do with the millions of Palestinians who feel they have a legit right to their own sovereignty in their own land? against the people that they think just came from Europe to take it. How do we, I, I, like, how do we change that narrative? So the first thing that needs to happen, and probably one of the biggest disasters that happened in the Oslo Accords, was that Israel used to have direct relationships with the tribal leaders within Israel. And so what does that mean? The tribes, let's say right next to my farm, there's one village named Rashida. And there's one village named Seir. And about a month ago, every night, I would hear gunfiring because those two villages are at war with each other for some internal tribal war between these two Arab clans. Now, those two Arab clans, and this is just an example, have no real national cohesion. That is a Western concept that has been imposed on the Middle East. And so... There's no need for a two-state solution because there's no need for it. But what is happening? Let's say like this. The people that are in power in the world, whoever they are, if they're corporations, if they're politicians, if they're nation states, whoever is in power, people that are in power want to maintain the status quo of whatever exists right now. Because whatever exists right now keeps them in power. So there's a conflict right now between Jews and Arabs in the land of Israel, and there is a massive agenda to keep that conflict going. There's not really a sincere desire for peace that these politicians speak of. On the contrary, the last time that the Biden administration gave millions of dollars to the Palestinian Authority, now the terrorism has gone up in Israel, as you can see by the news. Why? Because they're being yep. paid 
to do terror. The families of the terrorists get 12,000 shekels on average every month if they kill a Jew. So the Biden administration has now paid the Arabs in Israel to go and commit crimes against Israel. Was that their intention? Maybe yes, maybe no. Just a question. The Taylor Force Act, that I, you know, that was uh, something my friend Sandra Gerber was a big part of. That hasn't stopped it, or it, it, it was enforced for a little while. The Taylor, Taylor Force Act was basically during the Trump era to keep that money from the Palestinian Authority that we know was going to pay, you know, to pay for slay. Um, that, yeah. That's, that, well, that's the, just it, off. If you look, if you look at the charts of the terror from the Trump administration when the funding stopped and the Biden administration when the funding continued, you will see a direct correlation to Jewish terror acts of terror against Jews in the land of Israel. And so what I'm saying is that if you want to bring peace to Israel, then Israel as a nation needs to establish once again its direct contact with the tribal leaders that are within the land of Israel. And then taxes should be given directly to the tribes Abu Mazen today, the head of the Palestinian Authority, together with his children, own about $1 billion in their bank account. A billion dollars in their own. And who knows what other assets that they have? I'm just talking about cash. A billion. Where did that money come from? It came from all of the different places, the Europe funds. And the, well, does he have an interest then to really bring peace? It looks like he's making bank. And he's not, has he helped the impoverished Palestinians with all of the funding that they have? No, it's going to pay more terrorists right now to go and create more conflict. So there's an agenda and a reason to perpetuate the conflict in Israel. And the only way to put an end to the conflict is to establish direct ties with the local leadership of the Arabs, of every village, of every tribe, because the heads of those tribes truly care about their tribe. So if you were to give them direct funding to build schools, you would be able to do that. And then you would say, listen, we're going to help you build your school. But we ask you to not use the UN UNRWA funded uh, school books because they're teaching you anti-Semitic, horrible, brainwashed hate towards Jews. Here are some textbooks that we can work with together to sort of mold the next generation to work alongside the Jewish people. If we trust politicians to bring peace among people, we are lost. And Jeremy, is that something you want to do? Because you're on the front lines. You're saying we got to pull this out of the power players, the politicians, because they're just, they, they stand to gain from the status quo. So we need to change the status quo. We need to have people on the ground, you know, uh, people living in these areas, talking to each other. Is, is that one of the reasons you went out there? Do you want to do that? Is, is that, is that a, an interest of yours? That is exactly what I'm doing, meaning I can't change the politics but I can live as an example. I try in my own life to the best of my ability, particularly for my children, to manifest and act as the way I would want the world to be. So I try to live the life of a Jew that I think the way the Jewish people should live. And so I believe that it involves, meaning my partner Yossi at the Arugot farm is fluent in Arabic. So is my other partner Roni. We have amazing relationships with the Arabs that are around us. Now, I'm going to be honest. Sometimes we have fights with them. Sometimes they go into our grazing grounds and we have to like have a fight about that. And we tell them, no, don't do that. <laughs> and then they have like, okay, it's okay. That's fine. Neighbors have fights. That's cool. That's all right. But that's real. 
It's not some superimposed UN Resolution 242 as if that has any relevance to the Arab shepherd in the mountains of Judea. It doesn't. But what does have relevance? Neighbors, friends, partners, business uh, associates. So when we work together and we build together, then there really will be peace together. And when someone steps out of line, there needs to be immediate justice. And that they know. Right now, the terrorists, they, uh, the way that I feel at least, harta is the word in Hebrew. There's no fear factor anymore. There's no, they're, they're, they're just, there's a, 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 either a terror attack or an attempted terror attack almost every day in Israel right now. That should be unheard of. Israel needs to do everything within its power to stop that immediately. And, and why do you think they're not? Why do you think the Netanyahu, whoever is running the show now, okay, I know there's, why do you think that they're not acting as decisively? Um, I know, you know, I'm, I get news. Um, and unfortunately, by the way, Jeremy, you should just know this, that probably 70, 80% of American Jews are not getting this information. They're not getting everything. That's why I, I wanted to bring you on this podcast. I wanted my listeners to hear this, number one, and to meet you. And number two, they're not finding out what you just said, which is that there are attacks every day, every day. You, you got to get like on one of these WhatsApp groups to get this information because CNN and, 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 and not even Fox is covering it. So what, why do you think they're not doing what's necessary to put an end to this or at least knock it down somewhat? Okay, well, now we've really entered into politics uh, of Israel, and which is totally fine and understandable because we've talked about like the Geula and very high ideals, but really that's what Abraham was called to do, was to build a kingdom, right? I mean, the famous saying of tikkun olam, there's an ending to that, tikkun olam b'malchut shaddai. It's to fix the world in the kingdom of God, meaning there's going to be a kingdom with an army and taxes and politics, and even, I mean, every kingdom, every country is going to have yippy things in politics and but through that it's not to like separate ourselves from the world and it's not an individual effort one person can maybe save a whale one person can take a vow of silence and reach very godly heights but a nation a country with politics if they do it the right way can change the whole world and that's what we're tasked with we don't just have like our personal redemption but we really believe in a national redemption and that's amazing so let's talk about the politics of israel right now um, I think that I, I would love to commission a cartoon. And the cartoon would be like this. Benjamin Netanyahu and Bitsalel Smotrich and Itamar Benvir, which are sort of like the three faces of the right wing in Israel. And they're driving the car. And they're sitting on the lap of an older man like their father. And they're like, yay, we're driving the car. We're going way. And... Whenever the father really wants to make a turn, he grabs onto the wheel and is able to pull it to the left or step on the brakes and halt us. And that father in the cartoon would be called the court system, the legal system, the elite left that Ben-Gurion sort of positioned at the very establishment of the state of Israel that elect themselves. And what we've discovered through this last just tumultuous time in Israel um, is that they are the leaders of Israel. They are the ones that have the final say. And so, for example, the minister of national security wanted to fire one of the chief of police because he says, you're not doing a good enough job. Now, in Israel, the law is the yoetz mishpati, the legal advisor of every ministry, is the final say, not the minister. 
the legal advisor, even though the word is yoetz, the word is advisor, somehow in the legal systems of Israel, it is turned in that the legal advisor has more power than the minister himself. So Itamar Benvir wanted to remove the uh, chief of police and the yoetz mishpati, the legal advisor says, it's not legal for you to do that. And so imagine that there's a country that literally can't function because there are two warring realities. So we are not like a sovereign democracy right now. There's a small group of people that are unelected by the nation of Israel. They're very ideological people, very educated people, and they all are like one kahoot. And I would say that the Supreme Court and the legal system in Israel, they probably represent the merits party at large. Elite, secular, um, academic, very left-wing, very woke, let's call them. And so the merits party did not pass the threshold in the last election. So they are a very small minority in the Israeli public, but yet they are the final decision on everything in Israel, the final decision on everything. Imagine that. So even though we have a right-wing government that wants to implement certain policies, when they try to implement a policy, all it takes is one legal advisor to say, nope, I think that that is not legal. And then everything is stopped. So our country right now is not able to function as an organism because the organisms themselves are at attack with each other. And that's what they were trying to do with this judicial reform. They said, we have to fix this situation. It's impossible. And so, but then you saw what happened, which was really, truly remarkable. It was like watching Jewish history unfold as there were hundreds of thousands of people sometimes in the streets protesting. They don't want judicial reform. And so what's going on here? And so we are literally watching or participating in Jewish history here in Israel. And how, how would you, you know, without getting further and further into the merits or demerits of each side's view, how would you, as someone who values unity, peace, and love, right, within the Jewish people, you know, you made a comment before, Jeremy, about how, you know, you've got two, two Arab villages at, you know, they've got their own stuff. And you know that that's been, you know, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, you know, that. Israel has been successful against some of her Arab neighbors is there's been disunity amongst the Arabs. How do we make sure that we don't fall prey or that we aren't falling prey to the same issue of, of fighting so much amongst ourselves that we A, can't get anything done and B, we can't remain a unified strong force against our true enemies. Well, I'll tell you, I wrote an article. It's the first article in the new Mizrahi magazine that's coming out for Yom Ha'atzma'ut. And it's coming out, I imagine, in the next week or so in the shoals around the world. And in it, I call it um, 75 Years to Israel, the Third Generation. And in my opinion, it is the greatest test that is before us now. And what does it say? You'll come into the land. And your children will have children, and you'll become old and take it for granted. And and then all hell breaks loose. The Torah tells us that's what's going to happen. The third generation, everything is going to fall apart. And when you look throughout Jewish history, it's exactly what happens over and over again. So you can see first there was Shaul HaMelech. That was good. Then we had King David. That was great. Then we had Solomon peak, then the downfall. And we can just see over and over again throughout Jewish history. There was Matityawa Kohen Gadol, then Yudah Maccabi, then Shimon. Ah, then the, the Hasmonean dynasty sort of crumbles a little bit. It kind of becomes corrupt. And here we are now, 75 years, we're in the third generation. And Israel right now, I would say, is falling exactly into that trap of just taking it for granted. And so thank God 
that just a few days ago, all of Israel stood for the six million. Thank God, the whole country stopped because it didn't matter if you were right-wing, left-wing, Hasidic, Orthodox, Litvish, you were a Jew, you were in the graves. And so it's a reminder. And, you know, it's like the living the Bible, whenever the Jews become disjointed, God sends an external enemy in the Bible to like bring us back to our senses. And so um, we're at a real critical point right now in Jewish history that we're really being tested. But in some ways, I feel like this judicial reform and everything that's going on now could not be better. I'm a very optimistic person, <laughs> but I think it is just the best thing that could have happened. A lot. I did not understand that we weren't in control of our own country because they're out in the streets in the name of democracy, but I didn't really realize how undemocratic Israel was, how important figuring this thing out is. I just, no one really understood how powerful that small group of people were, that they were able to shut down the banks, the airports, the malls, everything just shut down. It's like, whoa, you guys lost the election. What's going on here? It was like, so it's painful right now, but in some ways, um, Israel has never been closer to each other because now it's all on the table. All of like, let's say the pus has come out and now it's okay, now it's time to heal. Now we have to figure this thing out. And so it was a painful process, bloody pus, everything's coming out, everything's coming out, but that's like a part of the healing process. So I'm very optimistic that Israel is heading in the right direction. That's um, very, very in in inspiring and encouraging to hear. Uh, I always said, people were asking me, a lot of my students, like, there's such conflict, such turmoil. I said, first of all, Israel is exercising its you know, democracy by, by hundreds of thousands of people being out on the streets and protesting and fighting and arguing, and no one's getting killed, God forbid, no one's getting injured. Okay. So, you know, that's, you got to remember that that's, that's unfortunately what happens in other countries and dictatorships and totalitarian regimes where people can't express their point of view. They can't go out and assemble in public. So I think that's amazing. And I'm very happy to hear from you that you think like as difficult and as divisive this whole thing was, or is still, to some degree, it's something that's necessary for the country to go through. That you know, the the scab has to come off, so to speak, so that so that people can heal and the country can get fixed because it's broken. To some degree, you're saying. Yeah, well, I'm saying that the, right now the country is not able to function properly. Meaning, I was so inspired by my time in Dubai. I feel like so often Israel looks to Europe and looks to the United States for inspiration and leadership. Where right next to us on the other direction, toward the east, there's a very inspiring country called Dubai. And they're, you know, they were sand dunes. And he goes, yeah, but they have oil. It's not true. Their oil is like a fraction, I think less than 5% of their GDP. But they've made the largest building in the world, the biggest mall in the world, the largest solar field in the world. They're already going to space now. Like they have done something truly remarkable. And it's because their leader is very principled and he lives by certain principles. And he was the first one to reach out in peace to Israel. That's why I wanted my family to go there. It felt so amazing to be a Jew with a kippah and tzitzit walking through a Muslim country and seeing like everyone's people from Saudi Arabia with women that only show their eyes and German tourists with short shorts and tank tops and everyone was walking around there just having a blast. It's just so like there is what to learn. And so... I feel like Israel is on a trajectory, and that's really important um, to remember, that give thanks to God for his love endures forever. That's what it says. And I heard a beautiful idea that really to see God's chesed, you have to have a perspective of le'olam. 
you have to have a little bit more of a bird's eye view to really see the plan that unfolds. And so right now there's like ups and downs and political challenges and demonstrations. But when my grandfather first walked to Israel, there were 60,000 Jews in the land of Israel. Today, we're almost at 7 million Jews. We have the strongest army in the world, one of the most powerful economies in the world. Like there is a trajectory with all the ups and the downs. Israel is on a tear. And it is like so amazing to be a part of really the greatest Jewish project, arguably in human history. What we're doing in this country against all odds and with all conflicts, we are like figuring it out as a people of Israel in the most challenging of places. And we all know that the whole world is watching us. I mean, so much of my work is dealing with the non-Jewish world because when I broadcast, you know, it has wings. You just don't know who's on the other side. But, you know, I build a little house on a farm in the desert and nation states tried to sue us in Israel's Supreme Court. The whole world, whether they want to or not, are watching this little country called Israel and wondering if we're going to make it. Because if we do make it, wow, a lot of identities are going to be formed by that. And if we don't make it, a lot of identities will be formed like that. So much of everyone's identity, an atheist identity is tied in to the success and failure of Israel. Jewish identity is tied in to the success and failure of Israel. Christian identity is tied in to the fate and the success of Israel. If God manifests an amazing country and all the visions of the prophets come to pass in this little land, it's going to rock everyone's world. And they know that either consciously or subconsciously. So everyone is always sort of looking, I wonder what's happened over there in the land of Israel, because it's a big deal. We are the city on the hill. And so I'm just very optimistic because I have a little bit of a le'olam chasdo. Yeah, a little bird's eye view, which I think is so important. And um, this is such a great conversation for us to have as Israel turns 75 next week. Please, God. You know, and Jeremy, somebody asked me, like, you know, what what was the most ambitious? You know, my whole life has been devoted to outreach, engaging less affiliated, our less affiliated Jewish brothers and sisters here in the United States. And somebody asked me, what was the most ambitious outreach initiative ever embarked upon? Maybe in history. And you know what? I love to think it's Manhattan Jewish experience, but our budget's only two and a half million a year. It's Birthright Israel. Birthright Israel was pioneered by a man who's a professed atheist, Michael Steinhardt. He's a friend of mine. He's spoken at MG numerous times. I don't know if he's really an atheist, but he likes to get people's attention by starting every speech by saying that. And Charles Bromfin, these were not, these are not religious personalities. And they recognized that the way we're going to turn American Jews on to Judaism and get them to consider marrying Jewish and perpetuating Judaism in America is by bringing them to Israel for 10 days. Okay, and it's a lot more money. I said this on another podcast. I was just interviewed on the Orthodox Conundrum. And I said, you know, it's a very expensive proposition. I do it every summer. We're bringing two groups a summer. We look forward to seeing you guys uh, at the farm. To bring somebody to Israel is a lot of money. It's about $3,500, okay? And you're saying that the only way we can turn or the best way, the most efficient financially, you know, fiscally, you know, smart way to turn Jews on to Judaism, big numbers is to bring them all 6,000 miles away and pay for that big LL flight or whatever airline you're on. And the answer is yes, <laughs> because Israel represents the future of the Jewish people. It's exciting. It's vibrant. And with all the issues and problems and ups and downs, right, it's all part of something which is becoming as you like to say, and you said it on this podcast, 
an expression of the ultimate prophetic vision of the Torah, of the Jewish people being this city on the hill, of being a light amongst the nations and really bringing the world to a higher place of enlightenment. If we could keep our eye on that ball, I think that we can stay positive enough to really get through. Now, it's easy for me to say this. I'm sitting here in New York City. But I would imagine if we had more people, Jeremy, like you, continuing to promote that kind of prophetic vision of Israel as being not a place that crushes the enemy or that doesn't want its Arab neighbors to live in peace, but that wants to embrace everyone and, and be a beacon of light for the entire world. It's just, it's going to allow us, I think it's just going to allow more of us to stay positive. And if we stay positive, we'll stay the course. Staying the course here is nothing short of bringing the Mashiach, which I think is the ultimate end of this whole thing, which some of the great rabbis of Cook and the like believed that the state of Israel was the beginning of. You know, maybe we don't think it's the Geula itself, it's the redemption. Nobody thought Ben Gurion was the Mashiach, but it's Chalta the Geula. It's the beginning of something, which is why Israel is such a holy and special project, and which is why we can't allow our fighting, our infighting, our our disagreements, and our some of the antagonism to 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 prevent us from just staying the course. So I really I want to thank you, Jeremy, because you are besides bringing more Jews to Israel and settling the land. I think, and this is my prediction, that you are going to be someone that the Jewish people are going to look to at some point to actually make the peace with our Arab neighbors and do it in a grassroots, one-on-one kind of way. That's going to really stick because it's going to represent the people and not just a bunch of politicians on the top that have their own interests before the peop- their own peoples. So I, I congratulate you. Um, I just have one last question for you. And that is, what would you say to someone like me? I'm always looking for advice and guidance from people I respect. And I love what you've done. I have a lot of respect for the work you're doing. What would you, what do you think would be the best thing for me, for someone who's in New York, trying to turn on, inspire, reconnect as much of our Jewish brothers and sisters as possible to get on the bandwagon? Because, and I'll I'll stop talking in a second, another amazing phenomena going on, we haven't even talked about this, is all of these young singles going and making Aliyah, many of them not observant, many of them from the conservative reform community or just unaffiliated. Well, not so unaffiliated, you're not making Aliyah if you're not unaffiliated, but Tel Aviv is just like, it's like the place to be. People are going there. We're actually opening up shop, Tel Aviv Jewish Experience now. I've been teaching some classes there, here and there, because it's just a lot of Anglo-Saxons. So, you know, I'm continuing to encourage that, but it's still relatively a small group of American Jews, what would you recommend? What would you say could really make a difference in terms of what we could be doing now from the sidelines, from the diaspora, to truly help Israel get to the ne- to, the, to that next place? Okay, so that's a really good question. And I mean, who am I to say how to reach the Jews of New York better than you? You are like the master, but I'll try to give like what I think Judaism needs not only in New York, but also in Israel. I think that we need to talk a lot more about Hashem, to talk a lot more about God. God needs to be not a theology, not a philosophy, 
but a living presence in our life. And that's something that each person in their own religious observance, they can live one way. It's not a, it's, it's just like, you know, are you living the emuna? Are you living like, you know, when you have a, a, a question in life, a direction, should I take this job or this job? Do you pray about it? But prayer isn't just asking. Prayer is also listening. Like try to listen, try to live a guided life. Bring God into your life and live by that and watch what happens. Spice carts appear. Spice carts, that's kind of a language that we use on the Land of Israel Network and the Land of Israel Fellowship. But when Yosef HaTzadik is sent down to Egypt, so the Torah tells us that he's sent down in a spice cart. And it's like, why is that relevant information for us to know how he got down to Egypt as a slave if he was carried on a camel or a donkey or a spice cart? And then Rashi says, oh, that's really important. At that time, most of the carts that would go down sold sulfur, and sulfur smelled really bad. And all of a sudden, Yosef saw that he was on a spice cart with delicious smells. And at that moment, he saw the darkest time of his life. His brothers betrayed him. He's being sold into slavery. Where is God? What is going on? Ah, there's a spice cart. There's something that's so out of the ordinary here. It was like God's signature saying, I want you to know, even in your dark times, I'm right here with you, Yosef. And from that moment, you never see Yosef complain. He never complains. He's then thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. He never, ever complains. And at the very end, he says, don't worry, God had a plan. From that spice cart, he was just living a guided life. He saw that something was going on there, that a master plan was unfolding. And spice carts, if your eyes are open to them and your heart is open to them, You'll see that you'll literally be, you'll meet the right people at the right time. You'll listen to the right podcast at the right time. Things that you're thinking about, just be open to it. Let God be a living presence and experience, not just an intellectual exercise or a ritual or a religion. And so I think that we all need a lot more of that, a lot more Akadosh Baruch Hu in our life. And then maybe what would happen, and this is a conversation that I'm dying to have with an ultra-Orthodox Jew. I mean, ultra-Orthodox. I mean, the ones that like, hate the, the the state of Israel. I want to, and I'll, I'll just put it out there as a question that I would ask them. And I would say, is it okay to believe that God would answer our prayers? And I imagine that an ultra-Orthodox rabbi would say, not only is it okay to believe that God would answer your prayers, it's you should have bitachon that God would answer your prayers. And then I would say, well, for so many centuries upon centuries, we've prayed the sanes. God, please raise the flag of our people and bring back us to the land of Israel. And then I would say on Yom Ha'atzma'ut, and I would say this in memory of Lucy and Maya and Rina, who Rav Leo D keeps on talking about the Israeli flag and the importance of the state of Israel. Can we not see that flag, the star of David, the star of the Jewish people, and all of the Jews around the world, he butts to it to Galuyot under that one flag. Could we not see that as an answer to our prayers? And so with Yom Ha'atzmaut coming, I would love for us to really realize that with all of the challenges and all of the obstacles, the prayers of thousands of years are literally being answered through us. We are the answer to our fathers and their fathers and their fathers. If they only prayed for that to happen and we get to be the answer, yes. And that's really what Yom Ha'atzmaut is about. Wow. Jeremy Gimple, thank you so much for that. More God, more Hashem. I could not agree more. 
And, you know, I know that intellectually, but the reason that was helpful to me personally is because um, I need I need chizuk and support personally. And I think a lot of my colleagues to be, to just push back on so many of the other ideologies that are sort of countering, that are hiding, that are further hiding God and keeping God out of our conversations. Because ultimately, that's what this whole thing is about. It's all about Hashem. That's what Israel, Israel is just an instrument towards shining a big light on on Hashem and our relationship with Him. So, um, yeah. And, and, I, and I want you to know, like, you know, there are people who struggle with God, with their belief in God, or whether they believe in a personal God and, you know, like a Spinoza God, you know, like, um, but I think we just have to keep speaking about it, speak about it respectfully, understand that not everybody would believe in that, but like anything else that's deep, I've been learning a lot of Kabbalah in the last seven, eight years, like anything else that's deep that we don't quite understand fully, but we, but we believe is hitting on truths. Just keep saying it. Just let it seep in. So thank you. Yeah, <laughs> my pleasure. It. I really do. It's and, been such a and, fun and conversation, I, Rebel. We should do this all the time. <laughs> oh, this is awesome. I, I it really was the highlight. I have to tell you, we asked people to write down um, on our trip to Israel last year what was the best moment, best part. Most of the group wrote down your Arugot Farms, and um, I believe it. And uh, we're gonna. Uh, it, it was just there was something. It listen. It was you. You know, it it um, it was Yossi, it was Yon. It was like your whole crowd that you have there. You just and and the, the beautiful setting and but it's really the bigger picture of what you're trying to do. It's a very attractive kind of thing. And um, whatever association MG can have with that and continue to promote it and bring people to it um, is a big zechus for us. It's a big honor for us to have even just a little little snipchick. So, um, yeah, I look forward to having more of these conversations with you. And if you ever get, get stuck in Gullus, will you ever come? Can we get you to come, like, in person and speak here in New York City? It would be so awesome. Absolutely. We just got to figure it out. We've got the right time. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, well, we'll talk offline. I would love that. It would be such a great, great honor. We are coming the last week of July, so I'm doing this. I, this is probably not the appropriate time to have this conversation in front of everyone else, but... Um, we want to, we want to book some time, bring our group to see you guys again. It was very special. Excellent. I will be here at the end of July. A hundred percent. I will be here. And, and, and by the way, three of my four kids are in Israel and they want to spend Shabbos there again. So we'll be in touch. I know, I know, I know. I'm <laughs> going to work awesome. on that. <laughs> All right, Rabbi. Really, Thanks, really man. fun talking Thank to you. you. Awesome.